It's something which will be there forever. I will never, never let go. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anyone to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody to boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to Life on the Line. Last Friday, I shared with you my conversation with German World War II veteran Eugen Pikura. If you missed it, I encourage you to also listen to that episode. This week's bonus conversation is with Jens Milbrett, who served in the East German military in the Cold War. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking on Skype today with Jens Milbrett. Jens, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hello. So, Jens, where and when were you born? Uh, I was born in 1962 in uh, the north of East Germany, about a year after the Berlin Wall went up. Do you have any military history in the family? Not at all. Nothing. It was compulsory to join the the army in East Germany. That was uh, my only connection. How old were your parents during the Second World War? Uh, my father was born in 29, so he was probably lucky uh, not being a little bit older because uh, he got sent as a, as a 12-year-old to a camp to be educate, uh, educated as an SS officer. And uh, fortunately, the, the head of that school uh, was fair enough to, uh, when the when the Russians approached to send the boys all home, uh, um, and he made it home uh, two days before the Russians marched into his hometown. Wow! So he's just managed to escape being part of that generation caught up in that very bloody conflict. And you're born in a fascinating era. The Cuban Missile Crisis has just occurred, and tensions are at record highs. Do you have much memory growing up of being aware of this? greater global geopolitical struggle or were you just more focused on the immediate circumstances of day-to-day life? Well, if you get born into such circumstances, you tend not to question it. You just take them as they are. I went to school and uh, I always knew that there was a conflict on, especially uh, end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. The Vietnam War was going on and everybody was talking about But the circumstances were different how I saw it. I've been exposed to the to the um, communist propaganda from my very first day on. So I did not really question anything. It was just a very one sided opinion I had at that stage which I'm sure will have grown and changed over the years, which we'll get to when we get to your military career. But staying in your childhood for a moment, what was your childhood like? My mother, she was a writer. She was writing in an ancient North German language, which is sort of dying, unfortunately, now. Uh, And my father was a teacher, uh, a school teacher. 
I had a brother eight years older than me. Would you describe it as a happy childhood? Yes, yeah, I was I was very lucky. Uh, it, it was actually I grew up in a in a small village, which uh, was next to a big town, and this big town sort of grew and swallowed this little village. But when I when I was a child, it still had maintained this uh, the character of being a, a village. So everybody knew everyone, and uh, everybody stopped for a chat at the at the fence, and uh, so that I have very happy memories about that. That was the private side, and uh, then. There was the other side, the school thing, and also being exposed to the propaganda at that stage. It, uh, uh, I didn't see it as that. But uh, later on, I realized what they had told us and how it affected my thinking about the whole world, basically. It took me a long time and probably still takes me time to get things straight in my head because uh, I'm sort of questioning everything if that makes any sense to you. It does. Do you have an example of something, a fact of life or a perspective you might have been told back then that you look at now and go, hang on, I don't see it that way anymore? Oh, very simple. I just mentioned the Vietnam War, and I recall that in my first grade already, so I was about seven years old, the teacher came and told us we should all be solidary with the Vietnamese freedom fighters and we should uh, just uh, donate some money for them. Uh, and of course, uh, when you're seven years old and somebody, a uh, figure of authority asks you that, uh, you're very happy to do that. Uh, I was instantly prepared to uh, rake out all my, my savings, which were about uh, you know, $50 at that stage. And uh, my parents fortunately prevented me from doing that. That was an early example from being told something and not questioning it. Later on, I learned what the background is of the war. And as I said, I'm still learning and I'm still discovering things. I'm still discovering lies I've been told. And uh, um, I'm very interested in, in now in history because there's so much to uh, discover and so much to learn. Unfortunately, a lot of things repeating right now, uh, especially in Europe. So, yeah, it's, I find it very interesting. But, of course, looking back, it was not a nice thing to be told all those, those lies. History can be alarmingly cyclical at times. Looking, say, at the then recent history of World War II, your parents grew up and lived through it and saw it and experienced it firsthand by living through those years. How did the state frame that recent history and did that ever clash with what you might have been told at home or...? You mean how the the East German government dealt with the history of the Third Reich? It was very easy, basically, to just point the finger at uh, everyone else. So they they made after the war they made a cut um, and said, uh, "Okay, whoever is with us, we forget about your past." I mean, uh, the whole of Germany was was full of old Nazis and people with a history in that field. And the East Germans just, uh, uh, or the, the communists, not the, in general the East Germans, the communist uh, regime, they just basically forgot about it. They had some small trials on just uh, to make it look like. But in general, a lot, a lot of the old Nazis survived in East Germany and, uh, and not bad. Let's look ahead to 
your career in the military, when are you first exposed to wearing a uniform or anything like that? Well, I wouldn't call it a career. As I said, it was compulsory. Everybody had to go. Hardly anyone wanted to go because it was probably the the least attractive army in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, it's it's true. It didn't show any perspective. While an army in in another country might give you a perspective, might give you education, might even give you some uh, uh, just a job. This army didn't do any of it. Uh, they uh, tried everybody. They tried to tell everybody that uh, for the sake of peace, you, we had to go there, and we all knew it was just. Uh, yeah, just propaganda again. And uh, the army itself had a rather bad reputation in within the people of the of the state because you heard all these stories about uh, people being rude or being uh, physically abused in it. And uh, so going there was already something nobody wanted to do. And um, yeah, the reputation of the army was very bad. But uh, nevertheless, everybody got uh, sort of mustered at the age of 16 and then sort of got told where they will end up, which which part of the army, infantry or tanks or, or whatever. And uh, with 18, it started. Uh, people, they were very active in the communists on the communist side they got drafted earlier and people that were critical about it they got drafted later they, um, people could get drafted until the age of 27 and of course a lot of young men had families and children already so it was rather painful for them to go if somebody expressed some critical opinion about it oh he was just not as active supporting the communists how they would have liked, you were not, uh, let's say, priority. So they then put those people at the end of the of the line just to punish them, uh, knowing that when they get drafted later, uh, it would hurt them. So it was just a, a punishment. What about you? At what stage are you drafted? So I was drafted at 19. But that uh, has got another reason now. The Communist Party had basically infiltrated every aspect of life, every aspect. So, for example, if you wanted to go to university, you couldn't just go to the university and ask them. You had to go through several stages, and they were all uh, dependent on the Communist Party. So they had to say yes or no, and then you probably would get a, a spot at the university. I decided uh, I wanted to uh, go to university after my, my service. But in order to get a spot at the university, one had to go go a little longer. The uh, 18 months was compulsory, so a year and a half. But if I would have done a year and a half, I would, I would never gone to the university. So by giving more to the party, they would give more back to you? Yes, yeah. That was sort of uh, a little bit of blackmailing. So if you don't do this, you don't go to university. So uh, I did it. I went uh, for three years altogether, which resulted then in uh, me getting drafted at, at the age of 19. By that stage, you're in your latter teens. Are you starting to form your own firmer political opinions or are you still just accepting the status quo around you? Well, to answer that uh, it probably takes a little longer because 
There's, it, is a, it was a very difficult situation uh, in the whole communist uh, part. People had two minds. There was a, a public mind, which uh, sort of was in line uh, with the party line. So whenever you were talking to people you didn't know, you didn't trust, you were just expressing opinions that were harmless or they were non-critical. And then there was the other way when you were with your own people and you were trusting them, you would probably critical of the regime and you would express opinions. They were not, not on the party line. So, of course, even with 18 or 19, one knew that something was not quite right. But as I said before, being born into that system, uh, it was not so, so forefront um, questioning it. Uh, it was sometimes just, oh, yeah, that's the way it is. So a bit naivety as well. It was probably very early, early start of, of forming my own opinion and uh, definitely not that far that I could say I, I had a, a critical mind there. Well, you had no other frame of reference, no point of comparison. You have only grown up with this and it sounds like you knew instinctively there's something not right here, but you don't know really what else it could be because you're completely isolated in this bubble. Yes, that's true. Uh, but I have to say we were not completely isolated, which um, probably helped us forming an opinion because uh, living in East Germany, we were, we were on one hand exposed to West German media at, at all fronts, radio, uh, television, not so much papers, are not allowed, but they couldn't stop radio waves or, or television waves. So we we got a bit of a picture of both sides. But again, it was uh, it was not so much questioning the, the whole status quo. It was basically just you know putting up with uh, what was there and and trying to navigate any problems because you know, it was the, the society was flooded with with um, spies from the secret police. So you never, in public, you could never be sure who's listening and who is probably carrying what you're saying to another place. It was uh, a, a, almost a schizophrenic uh, uh, being there. That's uh, fascinating, though, that you got to have those glimpses of life on the other side. Like you say, even the Communist Party can't stop radio waves and television broadcasts getting across. What about your parents, because they would obviously remember quite a different life. I'm thinking pre-war. So they've seen a range of different ways of living. Do they talk about ever with you much what life used to be like or differences, or do they just accept this is what life is like now? Questions were just simply not answered, or they were sort of uh, dodged because they couldn't answer it the way what it really was, reality, because that would have been too dangerous then. So, yes, of course, sometimes they uh, it was coming out and they were talking about old days. But, you know, on the other hand, I think when the wall came up, they nobody believed that it really would stay for a long time. And so that's why they were probably just waiting for it to be over. And, and waiting and waiting and waiting. That's that's what I think. Let's jump back to you've been drafted. Tell me about your first few months in the military and what that was like. Yeah, we got drafted in uh, end of October or beginning of November and uh, got drafted into the Marines. 
in North Germany. That was 1981. Anyone listening who might think of U.S. Marines, very different. You were, of course, in the Volksmarine, which was the um, People's Navy. So that's basically the equivalent of the East German Navy. Yes. And some might recall 1981 was the year when uh, in Poland uh, there was uh, the the Solidarność movement uh, coming up. And there was a lot of tension. It was a um, similar situation what we had uh, 1968 in Prague, uh, where the the East German army also uh, got on, uh, was put on alert. Uh, so we got drafted, and even we were, you know, young recruits. Uh, we had a lot of alarms in our initial um, education. Uh, you know, standing for our outside, and everybody thought, "Oh, it's going towards Poland now." But fortunately, not, n- none of that has happened. So it was a exciting time, and of course, we've been told that uh, some. I don't know what the the English word is. Con- contra revolutions. Counter revolutionaries. Counter, yeah were going on in Poland, and we are here to protect them. And uh, so, yeah, propaganda, lots of propaganda. Tell me a bit more about the day-to-day routine, ignoring disruptions from alarms and standing to. What was it like? Uh, it was, um, I went into a big unit, um, as I said, north of Germany, um, uh, right by the water, uh, about 2,000 recruits. And so it was a big factory as such. Uh, um, we uh, had the normal uh, 6 o'clock in the morning till uh, uh, 10 o'clock at night. Uh, with all the, the disciplinary things the, you, you can imagine from an army. The, the East German army, even it's, it sort of pronounced itself as an army of new type. It was very conservative. It was very um, orientating itself on the history of the Wehrmacht. So uh, even the uniforms were very, very close to that. And it was really, uh, first you, you do what's, what's said, and then you, you might complain. So uh, discipline was the, probably the, the biggest issue. Did you adjust okay, or did you have those discipline issues yourself? No, no. I mean, yes. I mean, everybody had, let's say, small hiccups adjusting to the to this. That was pretty normal. But in in general, it was it was so big and it was so strict that uh, everybody kept their head in and and just tried to get through it. There there was there was definitely not a place to become you know a hero or such. It was uh, pretty pretty harsh. The initial um, education was eight weeks, and then we got uh, special training. But that was not something we could elect. We we just been told. I was elected to become a driver, uh, so I had another three months of training on driving trucks. It was uh, in the middle of winter, so it was icy and. Uh, 
they had their own um, driving tracks, uh, off-road tracks. Everything was in ice uh, and, and snow. So that was that was pretty harsh. We sometimes spent uh, four, four or five hours on the on the back of a truck without any heating or anything, just being driven around. After that, when the, the first half year was over, we basically got sent into the to, uh, units we were supposed to serve our time. So the initial training was uh, the basic training and then the special training, and then we got sent off to where uh, we should serve the rest of the time. Where's that for you? It was uh, in my hometown, which was a very unusual occasion. Or, um, it was very unusual because uh, it was a policy of the regime to basically send people very far away from home. I can't really tell what the reason for that was, if it was character building or they just wanted to avoid any any um, more disciplinary um, problems by, you know, getting people far away from their friend, friends. So I have no idea. Makes the army the only support base you have, the only point of familiarity, whereas you have a bit of confidence and um, you know, set foundation in your hometown. So... It does sound unusual for a regime like that to send you there and also quite lucky for you. Yeah, well, I was not so lucky as such because I lasted there just about three months. What happened after this uh, this initial training is uh, I was uh, first sent to um, Rostock, which was the headquarter of the, of the uh, East German Marine. And uh, I became a driver of a, um, of a captain. I had a an East German car. It was just basically uh, picking them up at home in the morning and then uh, driving in, uh, home uh, after after office. Uh, and that was, uh, as you can imagine, a rather boring job. East Germany tried to be an independent army. Of course, it was just a satellite of Russia. So whatever happened in the East German army was signed by the Russians. They didn't make any rules and laws without asking the Russians. So there was one thing also, there was um, an education uh, place to educate officers. That was in Dresden, which is the south of East Germany. Uh, It was called the Military Academy. And while very, very good officers were sent to Moscow to study, the Moscow Academy couldn't cope with all these these students. They established this East German Military Academy uh, in Dresden, and each academy, uh, each um, this academy had um, sections. So there were, let's say, the Marines was one section, the the Border um, Army was a section, the um, the Luftwaffe or the the, the air. Uh, was one section, and so so on. There were, I think, eight sections, and each section had a uh, a boss, a chief, uh, which was usually a general or an admiral, and they all needed drivers. And the the chief of the marine section, uh, he was a little bit. Um, he didn't like South German boys, and he always. Um, Got uh, when his driver was uh, going home and he was about to get a new one. He always tried to get some somebody from the north. I think it's just the language he didn't like, or I'm not sure. Anyway, that was the reason why I got sent down to 
dressed in. So I was running around dressed in, in my uh, marine uniform, and there was no marine at all. There was not even water except the river. And I w- became a little bit of an yeah, exotic person there because I, I basically could wear whatever I wanted. Even my, my sergeant and uh, nobody knew what I was supposed to wear. As long as it was blue and white, I could wear anything. When I went uh, after after hours and I went out, uh, I made instantly contact with people because they were so keen on where I came from and what I've done and why I'm there. And so that was that was rather a nice part. But uh, as human human brain works, you you just keep the nice parts in in mind and and forget about the bad things. Well, Dresden is a lovely place to distract your mind with. Yes, yeah. And I was driving this uh, um, this admiral around, and uh, again, a rather, a rather boring job. <laughs> Unfortunately, there was no other option to do things there, and uh, I just uh, lasted two and a half years, though, until I got released with... Um, yeah, it was a long time, very long time. So you're two and a half years of driving this Admiral round, and it might not have been the most exciting role, but it sounds like you would have been mostly kept out of harm's way, which is fortunate for you. But being around such a high-profile person, you would have come across some interesting situations and seen some stuff, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, I was. Um, on one, one hand, I was fortunate because while other other guys were training in their tanks every day and uh, you know really really robbing around the the mat i was in a very fortunate position i had what we call a good job it was sometimes already too good because uh, we took ourselves some uh, when i say we are uh, me and my colleagues we took some liberties nobody would uh, would have expected uh, are available at in the army we made it easy, but uh, in the end, it was um, certain things couldn't be changed. And I mentioned that before, that uh, even the East German army was ruled by the Russians. So we had certain regulations in place. They made it pretty hard for us. For example, the Russians ordered the East German army to be ready for battle at any time, which meant that uh, at any time, at least 80% of the personnel had to be in the barracks. So while uh, we saw uh, or we knew that uh, the whole of the Bundeswehr, which was our immediate enemy, we've been told, was sort of going home on Friday night, and there were just a couple of people left in each barrack. We had to stay in the barracks. And, uh, and of course, you can imagine uh, the, the, the bosses are not there. You have uh, uh, groups or, or companies, we call it, I think it's platoons is the word, of uh, 50, 60 people, um, young boys in their early 20s, uh, late teens, early 20s. It results in a lot of um, conflict and uh, disciplinary actions. I think the the biggest problems the, the whole army had was alcohol. People started to drink because there was just uh, nothing else to do. Some people just left. They just went out and then they got caught somewhere being drunk 
and uh, uh, got uh, incarcerated then. Worst scenario is that you got sent to uh, an army. Um, the army had its own justice system, its own uh, prison, and that was very, very feared of. There were just rumors uh, uh, going around about that, and nobody wanted to try that uh, or prove those rumors. Uh, that was very the devil on the wall. So it was a it was a difficult difficult time. Even we did manage to uh, find some some a little bit freedom there. Tell me about some of the standout memories that you have. Well, as I said, you know the the human nature tends to forget all the bad things and keep the good things. It is difficult to describe. You asked me in the beginning about developing a a conscience about the whole situation in in, yes. in the Eastern Bloc, and I and I told you that uh, when when I went to the army, it was not really nothing was really questioned. It was sort of uh, thought about it, but nothing really substantial. Being in the army for this rather long period of time probably started that process. Even while in the army, one was rather, rather solid uh, behind the, the, the system. Um, we were exposed to, to uh, propaganda every day. And uh, I, don't know about, I don't know if you know about in Dresden itself, you couldn't get any Western radio or, or television. Dresden sits in a valley. You couldn't get anything. So anyway, it was sort of um, the time afterwards when back in, in the normal society, when the doubts came up and when, when the thoughts came up, because when you're in the army, everything is black and white, basically. You follow orders and uh, you don't ask questions. That's how we were brought up. Or that's how we were, were told. That. When you suddenly, in reality again, you compare, first of all, and, uh, and you start asking questions. And that's when it started. I mean, from my personal experience, I just tell you, I was released in 1984, and as I said, at that stage, I did not question that system. Uh, in 87, so just three years later, I had decided to leave that country already, which was, is not a, a small decision. It basically outed you from a, any, any uh, public life. You, you uh, closely observed by, by secret police, and uh, if you went to the ministry and and you handed in your application for leaving the country you instantly became a, a no person so that is just those three years it was not even three years of uh, time after being a, released from from the army had changed my thinking 180 degrees uh, and i was not the only one because i actually when i got out it was 89 uh, just a few months before the war came down. So a lot of other people had done the same, as you might recall. In 89, there was a big uh, refugee wave via Hungary and via um, the Czech capital. So this questioning uh, of, the, of the status quo, that was a, a very broad thing. No, that's fascinating to hear about that mindset change over time. When you left the country, did you leave your parents back behind, or did they come out with you? Well, uh, that was that was probably the uh, the hardest part. Um, I have to say that my brother, 
got out uh, about six years before me. He was part of a wave uh, who uh, left the country officially because the East German government was broke and they needed some money and they got some money from uh, from the West. But one uh, condition was that they let out a certain number of people and my brother and his family was amongst them. So I had my brother in the West already and uh, he went out in 1983 while I was still in the army. The first result was, of course, that was all relayed by the secret police. The first result was I was not allowed to drive my admiral anymore because I could have developed a a relationship with him, a a relationship of trust, and that was not wanted. So I became a so-called taxi driver which meant that uh, any officer of the of this academy who needed to do a, a business trip somewhere or go to the ministry to berlin or anything could book a car and i was driving uh, i was driving that car then which resulted in a lot of insight on what was going on about the corruption and about the privileges those people had anyway that was the first re- the second result of my brother leaving was I had no chance to go to university anymore. It was so, sort of um, a uh, the whole family got uh, punished that one person left. So I, I had no illusions. I couldn't go to to university, which again uh, probably was a a big, you know, some sort of seed for doubt, uh, which resulted in my in my, me leaving the, that country. My brother, I recall that he was a very, he was, he lived in Berlin where all the ministries were, where the communists were very strong. And he worked for a, um, a publishing, a communist publishing company. And he was pretty strong in that field. And uh, the same thing happened to him. He, he saw what happened there and he completely changed his mind. He, he went completely the other way, which then resulted in him applying for getting out. But that is something he could not tell me while I was in the army, while I was there. He he never spoke to me about it. And then he was gone. And I saw him just uh, five years later. So the decision to, uh, coming back to the question regarding my parents, my parents, of course, got in trouble because my brother went. My father was, if you want to call it, lucky that he kept his job as a teacher because as a teacher he was supposed to be teaching the the kids uh, the communist way and he always refused that he always uh, he sort of navigated his way through without doing that and uh, one day i got all my <laughs> my together and and asked him look uh, i really don't want to be here because it was there was no indication that the wall would come down anytime soon and i asked my father and to my surprise he said look if you want to do it do it now when you're young and that was it so I handed in my, my application, knowing that I probably won't see my parents for the next 20 years. That was sort of uh, 20 years. Uh, you were not allowed to re-enter the country. I didn't know that you know, uh, a few years later that the wall would come down. But it was, yeah, it was a long, long decision, a very hard decision. It sounds this, and it sounds that's an incredible journey that you've gone through. That you, as you've gotten older, are starting to see things aren't quite right, and you're getting more and more of a sense of that. You're seeing your brother's own disenchantment with the state and him leaving, and how that has even more repercussion on you. And you make the hard but brave choice no, I need to get out of here. But as you say, fortunately, it wasn't 20 years. You could go back home a lot sooner. 
Yeah, I was. Uh, I escaped actually. Um, um, I, I managed to um, go on a holiday to Hungary, and my brother went down there as well. So I met him in Hungary, and he uh, put me in the back of a um, of a station wagon and drove me across the border to Austria. That's how I, I escaped. Uh, that was about six months before the wall actually came down. And I tell you, if uh, if I would have known. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it. I lost all my possessions and I risked a long time in jail. So you said then you escaped. So did you hand in the application to leave and it was rejected? Yes, it was several times rejected, which was the normal policy. If it would have been not rejected uh, in the beginning, many more people would have done it. But it was policy to reject it over and over again so that people might get discouraged in the end or just give up. On it. So you get to reunite with your parents, but you still decide to leave Germany and you move to Australia? First of all, I went to, um, went to Hamburg where my brother lived. Uh, and then, of course, the wall came down. I was not so happy in Germany, let's put it that way. I wanted to get out. And, you know, on the other hand, I was locked away until I was 27. So I was 27 when I actually came out of East Germany. And I wanted to see the world. I wanted to do things and I wanted to go somewhere. And the last thing I wanted was settling down and, uh, and starting a family or anything. So uh, I waited quite a few years and then um, I worked in theater, made some friends in England. I lived in England for a while. And then, um, yeah, I was just traveling around Europe with theater productions and somehow got to know somebody who was going to Australia and... Uh, I uh, decided to have a long holiday there and uh, yeah, got stranded here. I got initially trained as a electrician in East Germany. You see, uh, in East Germany, you couldn't just train whatever you wanted. Uh, you, you got given a choice of two or three uh, jobs. They were at that stage required in, uh, in the economy. So it was not that oh, I want to be this and this. You were given a paper and you had to tick a box of, let's say, which um, you liked most. Even if you didn't like anything of it, you had to pick some of it. I got uh, trained as a crane electrician. When I handed in my application for leaving the country, I quit my job. That was common in order to emphasize on it, to give it a bit more uh, weight because if uh, the reason why they didn't let people out was that uh, they needed workforce and uh, if I would have stayed uh, on working there was would have been no reason for them to uh, to grant my application to uh, let me go out so I stopped my job and I became a, um, a freelance photographer at, um, at small theaters and then and uh, then when I escaped and I was in, in, in West Germany, um, of course, I wanted to work in my old uh, job. But then I realized that the technical development uh, had gone much further. So while in East Germany, the technology was still 60s, maybe, 
50s, 60s, 60s mostly. When I went to the port in Hamburg, that was all brand new microelectronic computer control. And I was not educated in that way, not at all. I had no clue. So for me, it was a, a very difficult time because I did not know what to do. And fortunately, um, um, I had a friend who um, helped me uh, getting a job as an uh, electrician in theater. And that's when I started, uh, um, since I'm, I, I uh, worked as a theater photographer before, but then I started uh, to look at the, the lighting side and uh, I then educated myself further and further. Uh, I went to school and uh, became a lighting master later on. And uh, from then on, that was my, my profession. So the actual uh, being an electrician, I, I have never pursued that in any way. But now you're happily settled in Australia with a family and you've been living here for quite some time. When were you last back home? Oh, I came back about a week ago. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> not Germany. I have no bonds to Germany anymore, unfortunately. But my wife, she's Austrian, and um, she's got her mother still in Salzburg. Uh, so we're going quite a bit looking after her. Also, the the business we're running, we're running a, a, a fashion business in Castlemaine. We're going overseas to buy our stock in Italy a lot. So I'm, I'm quite a bit in Europe, but not so much in Germany. Yeah, in East Germany, you see, this all might sound very interesting, but in the end, it's really nothing of that where I grew up and how I live is existing anymore. My school is not there anymore. My sports clubs are not there anymore. My favorite pubs are not there. Nothing is existing anymore. So for me, there's not much of a point of going there. I had a couple of friends. Unfortunately, uh, they, they, they are not there anymore. I'm very happy that uh, East Germany as such has developed quite a bit. And it's, it's a beautiful part of the world now. But uh, it's just not mine anymore. So I don't need to go. I'm very. I have adapted uh, the south of Germany uh, uh, and uh, and Salzburg and Austria as my new home, and and quite happy there. It's become quite a disconnected, separate part of your life when you don't have those connections to those roots anymore. It doesn't really shape what you're currently doing today. Does it enter your thoughts often today, your earlier life and your time in the military? The military time, even it is more than 30 years ago, it was, I think, a very character-shaping time. Not that I asked for it, but I think it was. I mean, if you're 18 or 19 years old and you get thrown into this pool and where you suddenly have to swim, it is you know, you experience a lot of ups and downs and uh, very emotional moments so that uh, it burns itself into your into your brain. And I have to say, I'm, uh, in quite regular intervals, I'm still dreaming of it, not in a negative way, but I'm dreaming of it. It means that it still occupies a, a part of my, my thinking. When I'm conscious, when I'm not asleep and not dreaming, and I, I read something about that time or um, just recall, it fills me with sort of anger how these people lied to me and how they told me things that were absolutely wrong. So uh, hard to explain. It's, it feels like 
losing, I have lost quite a few years with that. So, yeah, it's a, it's something which will be there forever. I will never, never let go. But it's not that bad either. Well, Jens, I found it to be a fascinating conversation. Thank you for your time today. Not a problem. If you like the episode, please be sure to subscribe to us in your podcast app of choice. You can find us in Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and Overcast. You can also go to our website and subscribe to our email newsletter, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Also look up LOTL Pod on Twitter and Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Join us next Tuesday for a conversation with an Australian servicewoman, interviewed by Sharon Maskeldare. And come back next Friday for my conversation with another German World War II veteran. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.